0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Early Rubens, the Legion of Honor in San Francisco, is presenting Early Rubens, an examination of the first phase of Peter Paul Rubens's career. With about 30 paintings and 20 drawings, the exhibition examines work Rubens made from 1609, when he was in his early 30s, until 1621. It was curated by National Gallery of Canada director Sasha Suda and this week's guest, Kirk Nickel of the Legion. The exhibition is on view in San Francisco through September 8th when it will travel to the Art Gallery of Ontario, where Suda was previously the curator of European art. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. Amazon offers it for just 31 bucks. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Alicia McCarthy at the Wexner Center for the Arts. But first, Kirk Nickel on Rubens, after the break. (laughs) The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Pop America, 1965-1975, to the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Guevara. The first-ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit Nasher.duke. Edu. Brooklyn songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and singer La Raine makes her Los Angeles debut June 22nd in the Getty's annual outdoor concert series off the 405. Enjoy an evening of 90s R&B, musique concrète, and ambient soundscapes amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu slash 360. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Sarah Lucas O. Naturel, the first American survey of one of the U.K.'s most influential artists. Featuring some of Lucas's most important projects alongside new sculptural works created for the exhibition, O Naturel offers a rare chance to see more than 130 works in photography, collage, sculpture, and installation that have never been shown together in the United States. Sarah Lucas O Naturel is on view June 9th through September 1st at the Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good. And we're back. Kirk Nickel, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Tyler. It's a pleasure to join the podcast.
0: Both you and your co curator, Sasha Suda, start your essays in the catalog in 1608 09, which is a key moment in the history of the town in which the Catholic Peter Paul Rubens, now about 33 or 34, the town in which he was raised, but from which he had left for eight years to study in Italy. So set us up. Why did both of you really start your narratives in 08-09?
1: When we were conceiving the show and starting to think about the checklist, we wanted to forefront the city of Antwerp. Both of our collections have important works from this first decade when Rubens comes back to Antwerp from Italy. And Antwerp is such an interesting place to be making art at this moment, in part because of the decades-long strife that had been going on in the Low Countries between Protestant, largely Calvinist communities in that area, and the ruling Spanish Catholic crown, from which the northern provinces in the area had started to revolt in 1566. There's a spate of iconoclasm that runs through the Low Countries, and Antwerp is one of the first cities to be affected by this. So, from that early date, we have a very fraught relationship around the visual arts in this area. And then that plays out further at this moment when Rubens comes back to Antwerp in late 1608, and a 12 years truce is signed in Antwerp in April of 1609, which will provide. A period of peace, funds that had gone to the war effort can now be turned toward other concerns like luxury goods, like redecorating the city's civic halls, guild halls, private residences, and certainly churches. So we, we really wanted to hone in on the, these factors for what it, in Antwerp for what it meant for an artist to be reestablishing himself in the city at this moment.
0: There's a painting in the catalog, not in the show, we'll still have an image on manpodcast.com that Rubens makes before he returns to Antwerp, but that he brings back to Antwerp from Italy with him. And that painting is St. Gregory surrounded by saints. How does Rubens use that Italian-made painting of his once he arrives in this moment that you're describing in Antwerp?
1: So this is a fascinating element of one of the Coincidences that that all meet in this moment when he returns to the city. Not only is the truce about to be signed, but he he shows up back in town with a nearly five meter tall Roman altarpiece that he that he had painted for a church in Rome. The commission had been – he had won the commission. It was highly sought after by all the major painters in the city. It's the high altarpiece for the the oratorian church, which was known as the Chiesa Nuova, or New Church. Rubens wins the commission. He paints this altarpiece. It's ultimately rejected by the church fathers and a a bit unclear as to why, but it seems to be perhaps – the, the way that the, the little angels in the upper register are interacting with the, the, Rubens' depiction of the miraculous icon that the church held and, and from contemporary accounts, which are sketchy, we, we, we get a sense that maybe they wanted him to, to rethink how he had done that. So this first version is rejected. He ends up painting a second version right before he has to leave Rome. And so this canvas first version gets rolled up. And ends up back in Antwerp with him. So he has an example of his most current Romanized style to show everyone in Antwerp right when he comes back. We don't know too much about how he shows it off to the the Antwerp patrons, although it's almost certain that he did use this as, as something to trade on. Uh, when he comes back to town. But we do know that within a couple of years, he installs it near his mother's tomb in the Abbey Church of St. Michael's. So it does get put on permanent display in the city.
0: Yeah, after eight years in Italy, he gets to arrive as a fully formed major painter, and he also arrives as an intellectual and a diplomat, a, a small d diplomat as as somebody who 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 knows how to get along in a town at a time when when getting along is pretty important. Probably the only other painting in the whole whole show this week I want to raise that's not in the show is maybe a painting that demonstrates straights that idea. it's It's Rubens's o nine ten the real Presence in the Holy Sacrament which is today in um, St. Paul's in, in Antwerp. What does that painting tell us about Rubens and his address of one of the major contemporary Antwerpian issues of the moment?
1: So this is an altarpiece he paints for a sacrament chapel in the Dominican church in Antwerp. And it's it's a scene of church fathers throughout the the church age from late antiquity through the Middle Ages from Jerome and Gregory and Ambrose all the way through Francis and more recent popes and and Dominic. At the middle of the scene of debate is a monstrance with the Eucharist on display. And this seems to be the occasion for the conversation, which is also – Theologically, the most important conversation that's happening in Antwerp and the Low Countries at this moment. There's no theological debate that is hotter than what is the Eucharist in its essence. For Calvinists, the 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 Eucharistic wafer, when presented and ingested in the course of a, a religious service, remains. Symbolic. It is a wheaten disc and it references the Last Supper and Christ's sacrifice, but it never becomes anything but that wheaten disc. For Catholics, over the course of the Mass, that small piece of bread is transubstantiated into the sacrificial body of Christ. Its appearance remains the same, but its essence is transformed. And that distinction is at the at the core of, of many debates and, and the conflict between Catholics and Calvinists in the Low Countries at this time.
0: It's a matter of statecraft, even. I mean, this isn't just a philosophical conversation. This is a debate that interests the highest levels of government.
1: That's absolutely right. Uh, during the first uh, months of the truce, there had been some relaxation of Protestant preachers being able to come in to the Spanish Netherlands, including Antwerp, and being able to speak more freely. and, And this issue of the nature of the Eucharist, again, the, the debate around it becomes so hot that the Archdukes have to issue an edict saying, no more. <laughs> we're, we're not going to allow conversation around this. It's just, it's too divisive.
0: So the other key thing about when Rubens arrives in Antwerp in 8 09 is that Antwerp churches have just gone through this iconoclasm you referenced a moment ago, and all of a sudden that creates the possibility that there's a lot of work for Catholic painters, a lot of work for Catholic artists. And Rubens surely knows this and, and you know immediately embeds himself in, in the city's elite. And before we kind of go back to the beginning of, of the show, the earliest works in the show, I think there, is a, there are a series of works in the exhibition around Rubens' engagement with the Samson and Delilah story that kind of both show us how Rubens works— as, as a painter, as an artist, and how he works with the Antwerp's elite. Can you maybe tell the story as it exists in the show? In
1: 1609, 1610, Rubens develops a few different sketches around the story of Samson. In our exhibition in San Francisco, we have two of these oil sketches. Uh, what I believe to be the earliest is the capture of Samson from the Art Institute of Chicago. But sometime in 1609, it seems that Antwerp's Burgomaster what what amounts to the the city's mayor Nicholas Rocox approaches Rubens to paint a scene for his home and that scene as we ultimately know is Samson and Delilah with Samson asleep in Delilah's lap as a Philistine barber has been allowed into her bedroom to and is currently cutting his hair so from, from that earlier Art Institute of Chicago scene of the capture of Samson, which is a violent scene of, of Samson trying to escape ineffectually his Philistine captors, Rubens goes back to pen and ink and develops this earlier scene in the narrative where Samson has, as I mentioned, has fallen asleep on his lover's lap and she is in the course of betraying him. We know from the biblical account that if Samson's head were ever shorn, his God-given superhuman strength would be sapped. So this quiet moment of, of the barber sneaking in and cutting his hair is, is the end game. Samson's been undone, and he doesn't even know it yet. The soldiers who will capture him are waiting quietly outside the door. But Rubens also develops when he moves from the pen and ink sketch into the oil sketch, you really get a sense of the direction he's headed with these two figures of Samson and Delilah. Their their, their bodies are fitted together in, in a, a very interesting reciprocal way that calls on a famous composition of Leda and the Swan that Michelangelo had developed, which was a scene of disguise and seduction. But in this case, rather than Zeus having turned himself into the guise of a swan to seduce Leda, it's Delilah whose beauty is the disguise of her internal deceit. That's all clear enough and, and apparent in the biblical account too, but Rubens presses that a little further, and from the way her hand rests on his back to the fallen look on her face as she looks down at the sleeping Samson, you also get a sense of this Divided mind and a, a compunction about this betrayal that you get a sense both of her affection for him and the her need to defend her people through this betrayal and that that division of allegiances in a sense of being being torn or at cross purposes is a theme that runs through a few a few other works in that gallery where the Samson and Delilah works are. and I think it's important to remember that. These sort of scenes and this scene going into the home of the mayor of Antwerp, they're being created in a climate where those ideological divisions in politics and religion that we were just speaking about are running right through the middle of families and and splitting people apart and splitting communities apart that had once viewed themselves as very much uh,
0: unified. We'll come back to that idea a little bit later, this this, uh, idea of what you call in your essay, The Relationship Between Visual Appearance and Essential Truth. But the show's early Rubens, so let's go back to the, 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 the let's go to the early earliest Rubens's in your show. One of the earliest pictures in the show dates from the early 16 aughts, and it's, uh, it's a self-portrait of Rubens. How do we see him? How does he see himself here?
1: So this is a group portrait, but it's also the earliest self-portrait that we have by Rubens. He shows himself in a group of other young middle-aged men at Mantua where Rubens had early on in his time in Italy secured a post as court painter to Duke Vincenzo Gonzaga of Mantua. So Rubens is presenting himself among what are likely to be the individuals in the portrait that surround Rubens have not all been securely identified. We believe his brother is one of them. The others uh, we're less certain about, but it seems clear that they are friends, intellectual peers, likely other expatriates from Northern Europe who are circulating in Italy and may even have passed through Mantua. In any event, he's collected their likenesses here around him as he portrays himself not in the act of painting, but standing in the circle of intellectual peers uh, in his capacity as a courtier at Mantua.
0: Another really early Italian period work in the show is an altarpiece, one of the first Rubens created. It's a lamentation. I mean, it's a little iconographically unusual. Uh, What does it tell us about kind of what Rubens is thinking through both uh, individually and as a painter in at the beginning of his career.
1: So this is a wonderful lamentation scene that, that comes from the Galleria Borghese. It's the dead Christ seated on his tomb, but in the form of an antique sarcophagus surrounded by his mother and disciples, all general elements of, of this type of scene. One of the most striking features is the this leg, this right leg of the dead Christ that that Rubens is is working to develop a strong sense of foreshortening and that it that it you know he's attempting to make it appear as as if it projects out of the scene toward the viewer. And this is something that he would have known is a hallmark particularly for Italian artists and Italian art critical theory in the late 16th century is a, this is a hallmark of artistic mastery for shortenings that are persuasive so he's he's starting down that path on a on a large scale on a human figure that's that's much larger than uh, the figures that he had been painting when he finished his apprenticeship in Antwerp and when he when he just started work in Italy so this is a, a challenge that he set for himself The other features of the painting that are notable are its sense of light. He's certainly thinking about Venetian painting and uh, flickering lights and darks. There's not a strong sense of a unified light coming from one direction, but rather patches, zones uh, of light and dark that help to pick out certain details of the body and the mourners as they interact with the dead Christ. And then you can also see in that sarcophagus He's invented a scene that appears to be one of the relief carvings of a little Cupid or an Amor who's climbing up onto a burning altar. And this, of course, is a poetic allusion to the larger scene we have here, love sacrificing itself on an altar. And and that's, of course, a commentary on the, uh, the death of Christ himself.
0: Mary appears to be holding on to the burial shroud uh, on which Christ is still sitting, leaning. I think that's unusual. Why Why do you think Rubens includes that?
1: She She does seem to be lifting one edge of the shroud. She's looking up at a heavenly light that's shining down on the group. In part, I think it's an attempt uh, of Rubens to to create a, a graceful gesture on the part of the Virgin, but also uh, an attempt to present the body of Christ to 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 raise this this cloth this backdrop to to the dead body, and the shroud of Christ starts to to play a more active role in these sorts of scenes in the late. 16th and early 17th century and and one of the connections is doctrinal in the sense that when the priest elevates the host during that moment of transubstantiation that I had mentioned it's held in a cloth the 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 actual body is not is the actual body of Christ in the form of the eucharist is not touched that that may be there may be an element of that here in the way the the shroud is used to to mediate this body as it's presented to the viewer.
0: You know, if a hallmark of Renaissance art is that we are seeing things kind of the moment before they happen, here Rubens is showing us the thing as it's happening. Right. You know, we're 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 aware of kind of motion being stopped for our benefit. Another of the early Italian paintings um, I wanted to bring up was Rubens's Conversion of St. Paul, which is in the show from Lichtenstein. It's almost, is it kind of a preview of, of the dramatic, sweeping, swirling action that will come to be his hallmark?
1: That painting holds an interesting in-between space. I think you're right. I think it does give us a preview of the dynamism and the, the sense of uh, counterpoint to action that will come to be characteristic of Rubin's painting. At the same time, there are a lot of elements in it that, that are still uh, held over from, from the moment of Rubin's training in Antwerp. Some of the, the posed bodies that are, seem almost artificially posed and, and the color palette that is a bit acidic the The sky blue isn't blue, it's more blue green, and uh, the color of cloth when light hits it is largely dissolved into a, a much lighter tone. So it's yes, in in terms of the dynamism Rubens is going for, I think it absolutely previews his later work, although that dynamism will start to be played out in fewer figures. Um, and at a much larger scale.
0: Yeah, it's a painting—I mean, I'm sure I have this on the brain because there's a major Tintoretto show at the National Gallery, but it's a painting that's closer to Tintoretto and his conversion than where Rubens will end up. Some of the colors, some of the flurry, uh, multiple flurries of action in the painting seem more Venetian and Tintorettoan than they do Northern.
1: Sure, and Tintoretto will be a major touchstone for Rubens, we see that in the way that Rubens presents bodies in shadow. They, they tend to be uh, rendered with less actual paint applied and in a monochromatic, uh, with a monochromatic quality. We also see it in certain deep rushing perspectives, uh, and I refer specifically to the massacre of the innocents.
0: So why does Rubens leave Italy to return to Antwerp, and why does he leave at the moment he leaves?
1: Well, he's just painted this high altarpiece for the Chiesa Nuova. His career is made in terms of securing work as an international artist, but he gets word that his mother has fallen ill, gravely ill, and he needs to return to Antwerp to help settle the estate. By the time he gets back to his home city, she's actually passed, but he finds a whole collection of possible reasons to stay from the truce that will be signed in April of 1609 to the fact that his brother is now secretary to the city and can provide introductions to any number of politicians and and merchants who would now be very interested in commissioning works from Rubens. And of course, the Archduke and Archduchess are interested in hiring Rubens as a court painter to their court in Brussels.
0: Well, you mentioned Massacre of the Innocents, which is one of the earlier paintings he makes in Antwerp. I think it's eleven twelve. The uh, it's, it's it's a painting at uh, from the Art Gallery of Ontario, where the show goes after it's in San Francisco. As you just raised it in the context of um, of conversion, how do we see kind of how Rubens has matured over the course of his time in Italy and, and how he's really become a much different painter.
1: That's exactly right, Tyler. The massacre, as I mentioned, the this sense of deep rushing perspective is one of the Italian hallmarks of that picture. The sculptural uh, models, some sculptural, some more contemporary Italian models that he's calling on. There's this, this hulking figure of one of the soldiers at the, at the right of the composition that is holding one of the infants above his head. And, and this figure, it calls on a figure developed by Michelangelo of the resurrected Christ that Rubens seems to have known. And even beyond that, may, may call up uh, an ancient Roman marble copy of a Gaul that Rubens would have seen in Rome. So he's he's thinking broadly about models that he had seen there. And of course the subject matter itself is, by Rubens' time, a a sort of artistic test or trial of one's prowess. The Massacre of the Innocents comes from a very slim passage in the Gospel of Matthew, but From the late Middle Ages, it had been elaborated on by in sermons, where the beauty of the mothers and the children is contrasted with the horror of this violence that's visited on them. And that gets picked up by visual artists and by poets in the late 15th and through the 16th century, famously Raphael and Marcantonio Raimondi working together, extended even into a scene of a, the sort of a siege of a city. So it takes on this epic quality. And so by the time Rubens engages with this in the early 16-teens, he's definitely thinking about this this history of the subject matter and this opportunity to show that he can balance an intellectual understanding of, of ancient material culture, that he can paint in a way that is – beautiful. He can paint bodies that are beautiful, and he can also balance that with a sense of violence and uh, this horrific brutality. And and the ability to hold those two qualities in suspension, beauty and horror, uh, will become a hallmark of what we now understand as early Baroque visual culture and and literature.
0: Do we think that he's painting a violent scene a year or two after arriving in Antwerp as a specific or intentional or referential reference, you know, as, as referencing what Antwerp had gone through in the previous decade or so?
1: I don't think we can escape that context. Whoever would have ordered up this scene, I think, you know, and, and perhaps Rubens would have had a hand in in guiding that. This may have been, as I said, it's a it's a subject matter where he gets to demonstrate a particular type of artistic prowess that would be appreciated by a very highly informed collector. So that's certainly part of the desire for this subject matter. But it, it's inescapable when thinking about this type of subject going into a collector's home that this area is going through a protracted civil war. And that's exactly what the scene in a sense depicts. The The, the gospel tells us that the, the magi had come to King Herod of Judea and told him that that they were seeking a newborn king and that they'd be headed to the town of Bethlehem. Herod sends his own soldiers there to kill all the male children under the age of two. So this is a scene of of infanticide, but in fact, a king who's taking aggressive action against his own people to maintain his rule. And that sort of internal division and and the possibility of those who are in positions of power to protect the populace turning against them, certainly would have resonances in Antwerp at this time.
0: You know, we've talked a little bit about how one of the characteristics of Rubens's arrival is uh, just how quickly he manages to ease his way into the city's elite, which sort of brings me to one of, I don't know, probably my favorite 17th century portraits in all America. Who is Isabella Brandt, and why does Rubens paint her so fetchingly?
1: Isabella Brandt is Rubens' wife. He marries her before the end of 1609. So he's just been in town about a year. Uh, She's the daughter of Jan Brandt, an important public official. And this is another avenue in addition to his relationship with his brother, where Rubens can help promote his career through connections to major city officials. But it's also clear that he and Isabella have a wonderfully knowing sense about each other. There's real affection there. And anytime Rubens paints her or renders her in a chalk drawing, she seems to have this same wonderfully bemused expression on herself as if she's certainly happy to pose for him, but she also, she knows him very well and she's got his number. It is a beautiful painting from Cleveland. We're so pleased to be able to include it in the
0: show. We've talked a good bit about the return, I guess you could say, of Catholicism to Antwerp. There is in the show a painting of a Dominican friar, or maybe a, a monk, who Rubens was, I think, particularly close to. What What is that painting? Who was he? And how common a subject would, would this have been uh, in Antwerp at the time?
1: So this is Michael of Fovius. He's a Dominican. We already mentioned the, the altarpiece that Rubens painted for the sacrament chapel in in the Dominican church, and he would uh, go on to paint another scene of the flagellation of Christ for that same church. That was a a church that commissioned a number of altarpieces in this uh, moment of repristination of Antwerp's religious institutions. Ophobius, in times past, it was thought that he might even have been Rubens confessor. They might have been that close. That's that's doubted now. But he certainly knew Rubens, and they were both very close to the Archduchess, Isabella Clara Eugenia. And Ophovius, even in the process of passing some correspondence for the Archduchess, gets himself imprisoned. It takes a while for him to, to be freed. But this portrait is a wonderful, almost a speaking likeness which is interesting, uh, especially because he's a Dominican and that order, you know, it's the order of preachers known for their erudition and and rhetorical skill.
0: Yeah, he seems to have been caught in a moment, both speaking, his lips are slightly parted, but reaching out. His right hand is is reaching toward us. So again, we have the foreshortening, although more slight here than in, in the lamentation. Is there anything we should make of the way Rubens poses him with that hand reaching out?
1: I think we can certainly say that it's, it's meant to convey a sense of, of connection and, and warmth and, and again, maybe a, a, a nod to, to the rhetorical skill, the, the, this gesture that Ophobius is a character that's, that's warm and persuasive and, and that this portrait is to give a sense of that connection that may be a characteristic of, of him
0: before we're done, I want to touch on a couple of uh, really dramatic paintings, uh, including uh, what is surely the most famous painting in the show for American audiences, and that's Daniel in the Lion's Den from the National Gallery of Art. Well, two things. First, why would Rubens have been interested in painting such an enormous thing of this particular biblical epic shortly after returning to Antwerp?
1: The Daniel and the Lion's Den is a tremendously affecting painting. It's uh, both because of its scale and the subject matter. Uh, the few paintings in Ruben's body of work have the impact of his Daniel and the Lion's Den. This is a painting he executes in the middle years of this decade that our exhibition focuses on. And it it's connected also to a, a really wonderful moment in the history of the of art. And it's connected to a really insightful episode in the history of art where Rubens is exchanging correspondence with Dudley Carlton, the man who will ultimately own this painting. The scene shows Daniel having gotten crossways with the Babylonian king for refusing to pray to him rather than to his own god, having been cast into this pit of 10 ferocious wild cats, some of which are stalking around him, bellowing, some are asleep, some are circling each other. You almost get a sense of the the human emotion and variety of human emotion that, that Rubens often brings out in collections of people. He's here displaced onto these, these ten lions. The scene in Rubens' correspondence with Carlton, he mentions that he has a number of paintings, including the Daniel, that he has available to trade to Carlton for the ancient sculptures that Carlton is trying to exchange. And in this correspondence, we have him talking about the values of these works and connecting them to how much of his own participation is involved in the paintings and the size of the paintings. For the Daniel, he mentions specifically that it is, quote, original entirely by my hand, end quote. And you just get the sense that Rubens has a number of very large paintings sitting around his workshop, that, that he's working at this scale, not necessarily with these paintings having been commissioned. In fact, it seems quite the opposite, that he's making these on spec and trying to develop the market for these large paintings, things that would potentially be substitutes for tapestries. And in fact, in his correspondence with Carlton, he specifically states that his paintings can't be valued the way that tapestries are valued, which are are priced by measure. He also talks about the narrative choice. And in this case, it's a scene that comes from the Bible, referring to a scene of Abraham dismissing Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, Reuben says that the scene is neither sacred nor profane, although drawn from the holy scriptures. And that idea, that conception that, that he's gone to the Bible, and it's often stories of the Hebrew Bible that he draws on in the same way that he would draw on mythology for an interesting story that's psychologically dense and complex is a feature of Rubin's work that is, that's played out throughout his career. Some religious subject matters are for churches, are for devotional contexts. But he also goes to those same textual sources to find works that would be appreciated by collectors and connoisseurs for the insight that they give into human nature or tense situations. Certainly the Daniel in the Lion's Den qualifies for that.
0: Two more paintings I want to raise. I'm embarrassed to say I had not known the enunciation that's in Vienna before, you know, about a week ago. <laughs> an enunciations of a, a fairly standard subject, obviously. What makes Rubens's annunciation painted, um, again, just after he arrived in Antwerp, so exceptional?
1: So this is a, an incredibly beautiful painting. It's among the first commissions he receives. It's an altarpiece. It was painted for the Jesuit seminary in Antwerp, chapel that that would have been there at the seminary. And to my mind, its most remarkable feature is the intensity of color that Rubens is bringing to this. That and the sense of palpable flesh in the angels in particular. The scene shows, as was convention, Mary has been at reading the Scripture and the angel Gabriel has rushed into the room, in this case from the right. He's he's swooping in and it, it puts him in a sort of genuflecting pose. He has this incredibly colored orange robe that's fluttering behind him. And when you see the painting in person, you realize that the, the nuances of shifting color that Rubens has applied, often with a, an orange-yellow is very it's very broadly applied, and the way Rubens renders these feathers on Gabriel's wing are, are rendered almost with impasto squares of paint, and it's it's an incredible tour de force of a refined application of paint and sense of highlight, particularly in Gabriel's hair, and this highly painterly application in other parts of the figure. As well as, as I mentioned, the, the softness of the flesh, the, the left arm of Gabriel is almost dissolves at its edges. And then up above, you have these, these winged, smaller winged angels where Rubens is really showing off that, that sense of palpable flesh that he gets, an almost translucent sense of skin with, with blood pulsing right beneath.
0: And Mary seems to be taken aback, which I, you know, again, I'm not a scholar of Northern European painting or anything, but I, when when I think of enunciations in Northern painting, I think of a much more static Mary, uh, someone who's mid prayer and almost not surprised. And here she's stunned.
1: That's fair. You know, often when we think of the Annunciation or other scenes from the life of Mary or the life of Christ, we we do think of every every player knows his or her part and and we're all headed to the foreordained conclusion and in this scene rubens really does draw out uh, he's not the first artist to do this you know you get this you know titian's annunciation for san salvador you also get uh, a sense of the virgin's you know that that this invasion of her bedchamber is is potentially violent potentially uh, certainly off-putting and Rubens captures a sense of that also you know she's turning from her prayer book and leaning back her face is a little more impassive not not shocked i would say but definitely guarded and waiting to see what what comes of this infusion of heavenly light that's just entered her bedroom
0: and, and she's marking her place in 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 her book i mean she's she's she, she holds on to that even as she's even as she's surprised i mean there are lots of great little details the the, the last painting i want to bring up is what surely in rubens's time as well as in ours was a grand entertainment uh, the boar hunt how many boar hunts does rubens paint why does he paint them and and what makes this one so much fun
1: he returns to the subject a, a number of times. The, the version in our show comes from the Musée de Beaux-Arts in Marseille, and it's one of four hunting scenes, not all boar hunts, that went to the Duke of Bavaria. But in other contexts, Rubens is very interested in playing out this scene, particularly as it relates to the labors of Hercules, Hercules slaying the Caledonian boar was one of his 12 labors. So in in various contexts Rubens is playing up the in the boar hunt that that we're exhibiting here in San Francisco and that will go to Toronto as well. You have these themes that draw on on mythology, on that uh, labor of Hercules, but also certainly it's a subject that's very appropriate to royalty because it was it was royalty that owned the land and owned everything on the land and could determine who could hunt and what they could hunt and so it's a, it's a particularly appropriate subject for royal
0: courts the upper right hand corner of the painting in your show is almost i mean is really surprising once the viewer's eyes gets there get there it's not where we look first it's not where the action is but it's kind of a kind of creates a dual scene in a way what's going on up there
1: So you have these characters who have ridden in on horses that seem almost to belong to another age, a more contemporary time based on their dress. They look very different from uh, some of the hunters, particularly those at left that are more rustically dressed. Uh, One almost seems to have worn a, a kind of wrap, not exactly a toga, but something of another era and you do get a sense of this activity being almost diachronic you know that this is something that connects way back to to ancient history but that is still participated in today by the elite class and and partly for that uh, that tradition and and history of epic triumph yeah, they're,
0: they're watching, you know, the hunt is going on, they're watching the hunt, we're watching them, and the kind of opposite figure on the far side of the canvas is one of the rustic-looking chaps blowing a horn, and so there's kind of this reference to looking, being seen, and, and the violence, and the one thing that that, is, that that we can't do is is hear the horn, you know, there, there are these multiple references to senses, and some of which we can engage with visually, of course, but some of which we, we are called to imagine. It's, uh, it's quite a thing. Kirk Nickel, thanks very much. Thank you,
1: Tyler. It's been a pleasure.
0: This summer, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Disappearing California circa 1970, featuring works by artists Basian Otter, Chris Burden, and Jack Goldstein. The exhibition, curated by Philip Kaiser, examines the shared common interest in themes of disappearance and self-effacement manifesting in works that were daring and often dangerous. On view through August 11th. The Modern is also featuring David Park, a retrospective, organized by SF MOMA and curator Janet Bishop. This is the first major museum exhibition in more than 30 years to present the artist's powerfully expressive work. David Park is best known as the founder of the Bay Area Figurative School. On view September 22nd. Visit themodern.org for more information. This summer at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, See, Barbara Hammer, In This Body, a world premiere exhibition that captures the full scope of work by the pioneering artist and LGBT cinema icon. Cecilia Vicuña, Lo Precario, The Precarious, a collection of more than 50 of the Chilean-born artists' lyrical, intimately scaled sculptures. And Jason Moran, the first museum exhibition of visual art by the world-renowned jazz musician and composer. They're all on view at the WEX June 1st through August 11th, along with a site-specific mural by Alicia McCarthy, which is on view through August 1st. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest, Alicia McCarthy, is showing a major commissioned mural at the Wexner Center for the Arts in Columbus, Ohio. The presentation is called Alicia McCarthy, No Straight Lines. The presentation was curated by Lucy I. Zimmerman and will remain on view through August 1st. The Oakland-based McCarthy was the winner of SF MOMA's 2017 Sika Award, and her recent projects have included a 2018 show at the Berkeley Art Museum with Ruby Neri, and a fantastic building-side mural in downtown San Francisco. Alicia McCarthy, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: The Wexner installation, like a lot of your work, refers to weaving, to interlocking forms. And these kinds of forms have been in your work for a lot of years now. What about them interests you and continues to interest you?
2: I think it's just sort of the idea is the lines sort of all kind of represent life in different forms, really sort of life and kind of nature and human nature and and you know how it adapts and rejects and for better for worse kind of creates an overall you know in my mind kind of weave you know we're all kind of everything sort of you know on on the street level I should say I guess but you know kind of walking our own path or we're a plant growing and you know everything's so displaced and replaced right now that you know it all kind of creates its own sort of weave or web i mean i don't really think about them as as weaves like there's a place where visual language and verbal language have to kind of interact and so to me they're just all the work uh, most of it right now is based on just bands of color interacting with each other to create a larger form. It's sort of the simplest way. At the Wexner, I consider those negative space weaves, and I'm very interested in this idea of negative space and that everything around it kind of forms the positive space. So the work is all sort of metaphorical for, for me. I don't do a lot of heavy thinking about the work, although now that I'm talking about it more, or being asked to talk about it more, I'm doing my best to articulate it. but So with the negative space, it's this idea that, like for me, I feel like I am my individual, but I'm also whatever part of me is also based on what is around me. and And I like that idea. I'm somebody who is very yeah. open and proud of, what I'm a part of. I'm I'm happy and fine being an individual, but I really see myself more as a team player in a lot of ways. So, and I, I kind of moved to ab- abstraction because I was finding that people were latching on to a surface level of an image that was recognizable. And even though I never really did much like narrative work, there was always kind of a bizarre, you know, even if it was a figure, it would be in a really weird setting that wasn't quite, you know, I was, I've always, you know, prior to abstraction, I was always really into sort of open space and expansive landscapes not or horizon lines. And I wanted to see if I could translate sort of, an emotional quality and take away and, and, and again, kind of make it in some ways more accessible visually and through the making of it. You know, there've been insult insults along the way of, you know, which I, you know, I don't think I'm alone in, but I I wouldn't care if I was, but, you know, sort of like a child could do that. And I actually like that. I, you know, I think there's a lot of, Practices, whether it's art or otherwise, that are so removed from, you know, you can only do that if you get good grades and get a degree and this or that, you know, and I like the idea of, of not necessarily having to do that. And the, especially with art, that it's sort of open to anybody who's interested in it. And in that way, again, sort of the accessibility of, trying something, you know, so yeah, the, the weaves, I mean, all of the work sort of boils down to just sort of metaphors for not necessarily even life. Cause I think death is in there too, but just sort of, I always say like, it's sort of about nothing and about everything at the same time, <laughs> you know?
0: Do you remember when you started using the, the interlocking forms?
2: They always kind of had a presence after, I'd say, God, 94, 95, the first. Yeah. I mean, it always um, occurred in even prior to being purely abstract and, and then different things, you know, there's a image of these sort of box forms that get stacked and that actually came out of a process that I haven't done in a while, but I, Learned in like first grade or whatever, where you lay down crayon and then put tempera gouache over it and then scratch back onto the black and then what emerges is the color from the from the crayon. When I would be laying down the crayons, I would always lay it down in boxes, and I really liked how that looked, but I never felt like I could just leave it that way because it was just one layer of the next of the end result. And it took, I mean, it took like 15 years. I think 2008 was the first time I just kind of let the bottom piece lie. So again, you know, there isn't there. It's just, I work, even though the work is in, is repetitive imagery wise, I don't ever set out knowing exactly what I'm going to, what's going to end up on. As an image, and especially more with the found wood pieces, I mean my one rule with that is that i i never if i and I have tons of this found wood and and more recently, I've been excited in working more with store bought wood because a lot of times the found wood you know some pieces the wood and I figure out together. Pretty quickly what's going to happen and sometimes it sits around or we both sit around for years and because to me i mean it's a i'm we're i'm a collaborator i'm i'm collaborating either with paint or the wood or whatever it is i me and that material need to find a place to get this thing done and even most important to me with the found wood because I'm not like a a person who enjoys going and buying new things. I'm I'm more attracted to things that come with a worn sort of history. I always say like, I think my sight line is like in the gutters, you know, and in the piles on the street and everything. And and I I honor that. I honor that history of where, I mean, everything has a history, whether it's store-bought or not, but there's a lot of there's a lot of tragedy in all of it, but
0: let me let me let me jump in there for a second. Where did the paint you used for the Wexner installation come from?
2: The basement. I always if I'm somewhere I ask to go take me to your extra paint. Because again, I don't, you know, I I'd, I'd much rather see if I can make something work with what's there. And in this case, you know, at the Wexner, it was really cool. There was, you know, some really amazing artists of their, you know, wall color that I got to use. And that's sort of part of it. You know, it's all kind of, again, sort of in the history of that space. And and also, I mean, the baseline is just not wasting anything. You know, I I, I just much more comfortable in that space than I get kind of stumped. Like the mural in uh, in San Francisco, I had to go to the paint store and choose all those colors, which is really out of practice for me. Because when I paint those in my studio, I I start with one color; they're all they're all individually mixed. So again, these metaphors go into you know I never use paint right out of the tube, that one sort of store bought color. There's always at least two, too many colors. And so I start with one color, one line. I go back to my table. I mix another color, lay that line down, go back, mix another color. And the, each color is sort of interacting and reacting to the ones next to or prior. So I was kind of concerned going to the paint store and picking out 100 colors, but it actually worked out pretty it worked out just fine.
0: We'll have, we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Yeah, it, it's immense. It's, the, it's literally the size of a building.
2: Yeah, it's the it's side of a building, yeah. A triangular building, which is pretty cool.
0: One of the interesting things about how you do these interwoven forms is that it's pretty hard to tell where they stop and start and end and begin. They, they have this appearance of having just been birthed whole, is there a relationship between how say an interweaving form like a textile is formed and how you make the paintings
2: i have no clue because um i don't know how textiles are made and there is no in my mind there i mean there's it is woven paint to an extent but i don't there's no connection to textiles for me. They're they're abstract paintings and that's that's pretty much that's it, you know. I mean to admit this for better or for worse. I'm not somebody who researches you know, I I don't at this point, I mean, I go and look at art but it's not I kinda wanna keep all of that out of my head and keep the purity of every line and and how each painting is made on its own. And working with younger students. And I find there's, you know, we're so infiltrated by images and art because that's what we look at or think about. But for me, I I don't want it to be art about art. I don't even, I, you know, I, I just, I just, I don't know how to explain it, except I just really want to keep as much information out of my head as possible so when I'm in the studio I I rarely even listen to music because it's it's kind of emotional and you know and it takes maintenance and so I listen to talk radio and and mostly talk radio and for a long time I I solely was listening to creepy you know true crime podcasts because it kept me really focused in this way I mean the political stuff it just gets me so pissed off, and it, and I'm just so over it right now. But, but I also don't want to, you know, not be aware of what's happening. But I, I generally read sort of for news and politics. But I do listen to the radio, and and yeah, I and and creepy podcasts, yeah, because it. I just want to sort of keep my head out of it, or kind of as open as possible, even though that's impossible
0: one of one of the other things about the Wexner mural that that really jumps out is the way you use spray paint uh, across it, kind of as a s- series of interferences, a series of visual blips, a series of incongruities. Is your use of spray paint a a reference to your you know earlier life and I guess occasionally, sometimes even now life as a tagger, or is? there another purpose you want it to serve on on the surface of a big piece like like the Wexner mural?
2: I mean right now I think it's it or it it's really a, a tool in the in my little tool chest it's part of like the visual vocabulary and I don't do it in necessarily the right way but I, I you know it, it's exactly what you said I think it's just it, it serves a purpose of kind of interruption and integration at the same time because a lot of the work is kind of like a slow train like once it gets going there's no stopping it and I kind of have to just accept mistakes along the way and a lot of times there's things that really drive me crazy about a certain line or lengths of a line or I didn't do you know I all I see are all the complaints I mean I think just just complains to me back and but there, I also realize that that's just a part of it. And as the piece grows, even the parts that are annoying to me are just part of it and make it what it is. And again, there's the other metaphor. It's, you know, I am a failed human, you know, and I have, I'm not perfect. And there's things that, you know, I say or have done that I need to accept. I mean, nothing like terrible, but, you know, there's just as simple as like there's something you say to somebody that you didn't didn't say right or were caught up in a moment and I'm not somebody about regrets I kind of feel like learn and move on and don't do it again you know there's and it's the same thing in the art so and there I think there's that that is what kind of creates its character I think you know the work wouldn't function for me if it was if I use tape or rulers or you know preset colors there's something that really is dead and 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 you know there's a fine line between sort of abstract and and decorative to an extent and so I think there's just there's all the characters in it and characteristics that make the Paint, what it is, in a painting. What it is, and you know, I'm gonna keep doing it until I am not compelled to do it. And at this point, I'm just, I mean, embarrassingly, I, I wish I could kind of move faster with images that I get. Sort of, uh, I mean, that's sort of it for me until they lose their character, and I'm not compelled to do it. I'm gonna keep doing it because it's it's still, they're still interesting to me, for me to, to make, and, you know, as me and the materials get to know each other better. I mean, it's, it's, I remember a long time ago being just so excited of thinking I could be doing this for years and years and constantly be learning. So until that stops, I'm, you know, I'm just going to keep on this little slow train
0: the interlocking forms are, are dense and complicated and and, and and richly rooted in systems. And when I stand before them, my eye tries to figure out how they happened and they're dense. And there's a whole nother body of work you do that is just couldn't be more completely different. And it's, it's work that includes kind of these color bars at the bottom of or, or somewhere on a ground that is much more open and empty. And I think of the bars as having weight or gravity, but they also seem to float because of all of that empty space around them. This is a long way of asking, how do you do these two very different, seemingly oppositional things at one time? And do you think of them as being oppositional?
2: I don't think of them as being oppositional because, again, I think all the work I, I, I get and appreciate because I do, I, those those box pieces i feel yeah like they're being crushed by all the space around them in this sort of beautiful and kind of brutal way and the the color weaves again i i am all about the process of making it and when those color weaves are done for the most part i'm like i don't even want to fucking look at this thing because it's almost assaulting or aggressive i and or I fear that they're sort of aggressive because, especially, they're sort of, it's not necessarily to me an easy thing to be around or to ignore. And there's a calmness in those box pieces that I really, really appreciate. And there's more breathing room. And I think, you know, the weaves breathe in their own way. So, energetically, I think one's sort of emitting energy and one is more like containing energy. But again, you know, they're all it's all still, you know, one line is its one color and that's what it does. And one box is its one color and that's what it it does. And I love the sort of simplicity of that and I I think it's simple more like I feel about empty, which is very dense and expansive and not empty like void of something, not simple like void of everything, but that there's something really pure and and beautiful in just that one color, that one thing, and that's all that it is, you know.
0: The last thing I want to ask about is the forms in your work that writers often refer to as being rainbows. I'm not sure they always are rainbows, of course. They're sometimes... Bars of color that that move around in ways that aren't in the classic rainbow form. Uh, I don't know if you have a kind of little in-house word for them or in-studio word for them, but
2: no. I mean, again, I think there's that place where the where the visual language and the verbal language have to have to meet. And again, I understand, you know, because we're speaking in words that people we talk about weaves boxes rainbows but they're no they're bands of color interacting in a space and actually those sort of reference my older work in some ways the most because of the the reference to the horizon line so no again that's just part of the metaphor of of bands of color interacting to create a larger form and again sort of very kind of basic and then also Something that's you know can be quite deep. I, again, it, it is just a painting, but there's a part. I mean, I think there. I have to you know, there's a part of me that I think likes to push this idea of preciousness and an idea of like you were talking about systems and interrupting systems. And I'm not a negative person. I actually feel like um optimism would win in the ring over pessimism, but. I just, you know, I remember being in school as a kid and thinking, this is such a fucking weird structure that there's, you know, one person in front of 30 kids and just the whole setup of the classroom and the, the sort of rigidness of the, the information. And very early on, that's what I was like, well, and it, it's not so much like I wanted, I can do this differently. It's more like, how can we get the best results? for everybody out of the situation. And again, it's sort of a metaphor, like, I don't have a favorite color. All all the colors are equally important. That's uh, just sort of how I live life. Like, so again, I, I think the work, you know, somebody asked me years and years ago, like, is my work autobiographical? And I think it is. I mean, I wouldn't say they're like portraits, but I'm not a person who, and I and I I have a ton of respect for people who research something or but again even if you're choosing something that is seemingly outside of yourself you know again isn't it you who you know there's got to be some sort of connection there are correlations so my approach is just sort of how I approach everything is um, you know with precision and a lot of sloppiness and openness to mistakes and kind of working and being excited or being frustrated, you know, there's a there's a diligence of showing up every day and I work primarily alone. I mean, I I have a couple people that one person, you know, I have one person who if I'm getting ready for a show, I'll have her come in and and help. And she's actually really been very helpful because she helps keep me I can kind of wander around and get sort of caught up doing a bunch of weird non or productive but not necessarily on the surface of the painting and She's really helpful, but you know you know you gotta show up even when you don't feel like showing up, and there's something amazing that happens on those mornings too I mean once I get here and I get going i it I'll be here for hours, you know. So, yeah, in that way, I think what I was saying earlier, you know, my sight line is like in the gutter. Like I get more inspiration riding my bike around and seeing amazing things and seeing humanity at its cruelest with the amount of homelessness. And but then there's an, an enormous amount of ingenuity with people that have nothing. And the respect I have for them surviving on the street is enormous and and i mean that sounds gross it's not like oh i get my inspiration from homeless people but i'm just saying you know that's the reality of what i'm you know the, the world is beautiful and it's fucking cruel and there's we have to accept that you know i mean it's harder for me to accept the cruelty but at this point i you know i feel like we just have to there's just humans that have and plants too there's invasive plants you know there's just invasive people and again that's i think it's all in the work there's harshness and calmness and things kind of colliding and making their way and and in the end it's you know i just have to accept it and but when i'm done with a piece i don't want to look at it i i want nothing to Because again, I all I all that it screams to me is things I could have done differently, and again, that's what you know leads to the next thing. But I have a real yeah. I have to either I have to put it in a part of my studio that I I can't look at and thus can forget about a for the kindness of of the piece itself, and then b to the kindness of the next piece like. Again, I want to just focus on the pieces I'm working on and not be distracted by my own critical nature.
0: (laughs) I I love how much you use the word metaphor. Alicia McCarthy, thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much, Tyler.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program.